And now hear God's holy word from Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and hear my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, seeing it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, and on my men servants and on my maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that the spirit who inspired it and preserved it and superintended its communication to us would now fill us as we work to hear and understand it. Fill me with your spirit, I pray, as I uh, attempt to articulate these things and and teach through them. Give Give us strength by your spirit to hear and then to obey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to suspenseful or scary movies, nothing really bothers me all that much. Nothing really makes me that nervous. I'm not really affected by, you know, monster things. I'm not really even that interested in it. It just doesn't do anything for me. But there's one horrifying television show that I have to watch through my fingers I can't look straight at it. I have to kind of watch it out of the corner of my eye, and I can't. I just—it's like looking into the sun. I can't. I can't watch it. I can't. I can't look directly into it. Have you seen this horror show? This this scary thing called Hoarders. Do you know what I'm talking about? The show called Hoarders. Uh, it's been on for about a decade. This is a reality show, and it depicts the real life struggles of people who have a disorder, a compulsion where they can't let go of anything. And their houses get filled with stuff. You'll have this you know, person who's got dead cats in their deep freeze and, and pizza boxes and Pepsi cans just flooding their, their house. And so a team of people come to help them organize their lives and help them to clean out their houses. Now, I want to be clear. I have a deep pity and I have a real sympathy 
for these people who just let their lives get out of control and it becomes overwhelming to them and they don't know how to fix it. It's, it's so sad. It's like they can't even see the reality many times of the squalor that they're living in. I, so I have, I have deep sympathy, but at the same time, I have very little patience for the process of slowly picking through the filth and trying to restore the place. I have one solution. Every time I've ever seen this thing and I watch it through my fingers and I'm not, I'm not joking. I, I watch it. I can't, I can't look at it directly, but my solution is, Hey, you know, if we had about three cans of kerosene and a box of matches, we can get this whole thing taken care of. That's the only thing that's going to work. This show lives in a whole genre of home improvement type entertainment where viewers draw a kind of satisfaction from watching a house be transformed, taking it from an outdated state, a rundown, a rundown mess, taking it to a fresh, clean, comfortable state. And these things strike a chord with us because in our lives, we are always fighting the pull of gravity toward filth and disorder and, and discomfort and disrepair and decay. And, and we feel that tug. We watch that and then we open a closet and say, oh, you know, I need to, I need to get my life in order because we desire good stewardship. We desire dominion over what God has given us. And we, we get that by proxy by watching somebody else, somebody else do it. And I think that's why those shows are popular. Now, considering the house that God built for Israel, and I'm not only talking about the tabernacle and the temple, those were houses that were built that he dwelled in, and those are included in the house that I'm speaking of, but the, the, the house that he built for Israel, Israel as a house, the family of God that he dwells in, he, he tabernacles in and among his people. He builds them on a solid foundation, and he talks about them as the house of David or the house of Jacob. When, when David, when King David wanted to build an architectural house for the worship of Yahweh, the Lord says, no, 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 you're not going to do that. I'm going to build you a house first. And in fact, what happens is God shows him that you and your family are my house. I dwell in you, and now your son is going to build me a, a house. And so with that image fixed in our minds of God's people as a house, and that, that theme is throughout the scriptures, uh, God's people are a house. What happens when Jesus arrives? Jesus, who not coincidentally was a carpenter, what happens when he comes to this house? What does he come to do? Does he come to just kind of piddle around as a handyman? Does he just do some odd jobs around the place? Or does he come with a sledgehammer to tear it down and to build something new in its place? What home renovation metaphor should we reach for? Well, it depends on what condition the house is in when Jesus arrives. Does Jesus come and find that this house just needs a few cans of paint? Or is this house like a hoarder's house with the hallways stacked full of dead prophets, trash and corruption and abuses spilling out of the closet so that the doors can't even be closed? Does, does he just open up a few windows to air things out so that his spirit blows through like a gentle breeze? Or when he sends his spirit, is it like a category five hurricane that smashes the house into toothpicks? 
does the work of the Holy Spirit sound a little bit like my solution, that the best thing for this house is a good fire? In Luke 3, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist seems to agree with me that that's the good plan. John the Baptist says, I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor. What threshing floor is John the Baptist talking about? Well, you remember the house that David built, I'm sorry, the, the, the house that Solomon built was on the property that David bought, which was the threshing floor of a man named Aruna. The temple was built on a threshing floor, that uh, flat surface where you lay out your grain and you beat it out and you separate the husk from the, from the rest of the, the plant and you uh, can also beat out the chaff, the dirt, the dust, the rocks that get collected when you, when you harvest. There's going to be the separation of the good stuff and the bad stuff. So the threshing floor that John the Baptist is obviously referring to is the threshing floor that sat at the foundation of the temple. And so John says he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's solution is that Jesus is coming, but he's not coming to do a little fixer-upper. He's coming with fire. He's going to bring it down to the foundation. And John, very cleverly, has all of this wheat and chaff and threshing terminology when he talks about the coming of the Spirit. Hold on to that. Put it on a sticky note and stick it on your brain and hold on to it for just a few minutes because we're going to come back to it. But as far as John is concerned, the mission of Jesus was not simply to come rearrange the furniture and throw away a few old you know, National Geographics, and that is going to fix it but to bring the house of Israel down to its foundation and to rebuild something new with the church. Now, with this, a number of questions emerge. What remains of the old covenant? What continues? What is replaced? And how is it replaced? What sticks around? What what doesn't? And in fact, the rest of the New Testament is taken up with this question of how we understand this transition from old to new covenant. And how we answer these questions will also flow out of what we believe is happening on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes through as a rushing mighty wind and an anointing fire. Today is a good day to look at this because, of course, today on the church calendar is Pentecost Sunday. We are 50 50 days after Easter, and so following the timeline, we mark this day every year by commemorating and contemplating and rejoicing in the work of the Holy Spirit. So let's walk through Acts chapter 2 and see if we can answer some of these questions. What is changing? What is happening with the day of Pentecost? Uh, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, we read, they were all with one accord in one place. We saw last week on Ascension Sunday, that before the Ascension, Jesus commanded the apostles to stay in Jerusalem. And there, Jesus repeats the promise that John the Baptist made, that that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So he says, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And then 10 days later, the apostles are still gathered. They're patiently waiting. They're prayerfully waiting there. And, And then the great feast day of Pentecost comes. The day of Pentecost is... Uh, a a day rich with history. It's not only 
uh, it not only finds its relevance in the New Testament, but the Feast of Pentecost is a very old Jewish festival. In fact, there were three great Jewish festivals to which every male living within 20 miles of Jerusalem were required to appear. There was Passover, there was Pentecost, and there was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now these feasts not only attracted those who lived close by Jerusalem, but many other Jews from around the world. Pentecost means simply the 50th. It's, it's also known as the Feast of Weeks. Pentecost was the 50th day after a week of weeks, seven times seven, a, a week of weeks, seven weeks, 49 days. Pentecost is the 50th day uh, following Passover. You mark the beginning of this time period by Passover, and then 49 days later, you come to the 50th day, and the 50th day is Pentecost. And so Pentecost is always falling right at the end of spring, right at the beginning of summer. It's the perfect time of year to travel. And so at least as many pilgrims came to Jerusalem for Pentecost as they did for Passover. When, when Yahweh instituted this this uh, special feast in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he sets it aside as a one-day festival coinciding with the wheat harvest, the, the early wheat harvest. So when you start to harvest your grain, you come to the sanctuary and you give back to God the first fruits of what he's given you. And so here's why I told you to set that aside, because John the Baptist associates threshing floors and wheat and chaff when he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit because this early harvest celebration is going to find new meaning in the church. It's going to be the time when the Holy Spirit comes and cleans out the threshing floor and separates the wheat from the chaff. And then we also get this first fruits harvest of souls on the day of Pentecost. So back to Acts chapter 2. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. What role does wind play in the scriptures? Where do we see wind? Both in Hebrew and in Greek, the word wind and the word spirit is the same word. Hebrew has one word that means both wind and spirit, and so does Greek. There's pneuma, means both wind and spirit. So wind and spirit are often together. God's Holy Spirit and wind show up in the same place. And so in Genesis 1, at creation, we see the wind of God, the Spirit of God, hovering over the face of the waters. The wind is brooding over creation, blowing back the waters as the land emerges. And then God breathes His wind, His breath, into Adam. The Spirit of life fills Adam. New birth, new creation with Adam, and there's wind. In Genesis chapter 8, when the flood is covering the earth, and the earth is covered with water, God makes a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subside. The word wind and spirit is the same word. And what emerges after the flood is a new creation. There's a new birth, because there's wind over the waters. In the Exodus, Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and the Lord causes the Red Sea to go back by a strong wind. And he made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. There was dry land once again emerging from waters, wind blowing over the waters. 
And what comes through that, what is, what is birthed out of that is a new creation. Israel is another new creation. In the Exodus, God creates a new nation. He brings Israel out of the land of death and corruption and gives them a new life. Well, there's another mighty wind that blows at Mount Sinai. And again, the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel's vision, there's wind blowing again. There are many other places, like at the baptism of Jesus, the spirit descends like a dove over the waters of baptism, hovering and brooding like he did in the first creation. The spirit, the wind is often over the waters. And when we see the spirit over the waters and the wind over the waters, we see that we say, oh yeah, yeah, I know what that is. I've seen that before. That's a new creation. We see it again and again. Now in Acts chapter two, what do we have? We have the sound of a rushing mighty wind blowing again over the water of 3,000 baptisms. There's wind, there's water, and we say, ah, yes, I know what this is. This is a new creation. The Holy Spirit is breathing new life into a dead people, a dead Israel, and there's something new coming out of a dead land just like it did at the Exodus. The church rises up out of the heaps of the old covenant rubble, and it's being separated from the old Israel Old Israel, many times associated with Egypt, the old, the, the, the old Israel has become like Egypt, and the church is the new Israel that's driven by the Spirit out to conquer their promised land, which is the nations and the kingdoms of the, of the world. So what, what was the relationship of the, of the Israelites who came out of Egypt to the Israelites who were in Egypt, or even the 70 who went down with Jacob into Egypt. What is the relationship between the post-Exodus Israel to the pre-Exodus Israel? Well, the same people, it's, it's the same group, it's the same tribes, it's the same family, but after, after the Red Sea and at Mount Sinai, they are multiplied and they are lifted up and they are glorified, and they're magnified, and God's presence has tabernacled among them. His Spirit has filled the tabernacle. He is now with them in a new way. They have gone from being this tribe of 70 people to being a nation with laws, and a calendar, and a society, and a, and a mission. So this tribe was buried in Egypt, and they're they're resurrected, they're reconstructed and reconstituted at Mount Sinai. So that gives us a paradigm as we watch what the Spirit does. The function and operation of the Spirit with the church is very much the same thing. What's happening with the church and what is our relationship to the, the church, our relatives on the other side of the cross, on the other side of our exodus, on the other side of our deliverance? Well, the law and all of the ordinances and the worship of the old covenant and, and, and the calendar and the sacrifices and, and, and the, 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 the purification uh, rites, all of that is nailed to the cross with Jesus. It goes down into the grave with Jesus and it's resurrected out the other side with Jesus. It's all transformed. Everything is there, but everything is transformed. Everything moves from glory to glory. It, it, all, gets, it all gets renewed. And that's what God does with the, 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 the Spirit when there's a new creation. He transforms, He breaks it down, and He builds up something new. So now we love God's law. 
We love uh, the, the instruction on worship in the Old Covenant. We love all of, the, uh, all of the history of God's people and the story of His faithfulness, but we look at it through Christ. We don't look at it apart from Christ. We can't even access God's law apart from Christ. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. He brings things down and he makes them new. And he's always blowing over uh, the creation, transforming and giving new birth. So uh, not only do they hear wind, which is packed full of all of this stuff, not only do they hear wind, but they see fire. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Well, what is fire? Fire makes visible the presence of God, like the burning bush, like the, uh, like the burning lightning on the top of Mount Sinai, the fire and the cloud over the tabernacle. Remember the fire that came from heaven that consumed the sacrifice of Elijah, or the chariot of fire that took, that took uh, Elijah up. Both in Deuteronomy and Hebrews, we read that our God is a consuming fire. Fire is a suitable image for the presence of God because fire radiates light. Nearness to fire provides warmth, but it also destroys. It's also judgment. So here on the day of Pentecost, the fire is resting quite safely on the heads of the apostles, just as fire rested over the tabernacle, just like fire from heaven uh, lighted the sacrifices on the altar. Every time God sets up a new sanctuary, he lights the, the, the sacrifice, he lights the altar with his, with his fire. And he does it again here. The, the message is obvious. Where does the blessing of the Lord rest? It's no longer back at the old temple. He's setting up a new sanctuary. He's setting up a new system. And so he lights the fire on this new, on this new altar. His favor is on the church. They are his temple. They are his altar. And Peter would talk about this in First uh, Peter 4. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The spirit of God rests upon you uh, just as he rested over his temple and his tabernacle. So these tongues of fire on the heads of the apostles indicate this is where the spirit is now dwelling. This is where God's blessing and presence rest. The spirit is with the people of God. And so God lights his fire on you. You are the altar. You are the temple. Your life is a living sacrifice. He has lit his fire on you, uh, believer. And, and continuing, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? There are many times where we read that someone is filled with the Spirit before they do something remarkable. They're given this extraordinary strength or boldness or wisdom or skill. It's like the flame of the Spirit that's, that's always in them or on them, that flame that's always burning gets turned up, just like when you turn up the, the dials on a, on a stove or on a gas grill. You just crank it all the way up. It gets turned up to a roaring fire. And this work of the Holy Spirit to fill them in this way isn't simply to give them warm feelings or to provide a kind of personal spiritual experience, kind of a private warmth. We tend to always think of the Spirit's operations as this internal, 
unseen kind of subjective experience. But whenever someone is filled with the Spirit in the Scriptures, they act outwardly. It's their, their action, the focus of their action is on creation. They work outwardly in public, objective, visible ways. This is not surprising to us because the, the, the work of the Spirit is always on creation. The, the, the creation is the arena of the Spirit's work. Where do we see the Spirit for the first time? It's in the second verse of the Bible. And what's he doing? He's superintending the creation of the world. And then after that, we always see the Spirit working on the created order. Uh, he, 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 so when He fills us, He strengthens our hands, He emboldens us, He gives us skill to continue His work on the created order. There was a man named Bezalel that God uh, filled with His Spirit to begin working on the tabernacle and working with skill and craft and glory and beauty. Bezalel was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was the chief artisan of the tabernacle. He, he was the foreman for that job, and he was filled with the Spirit, and he did this work with his hands, with skill and beauty. He filled Samson. We read the Spirit of God filled Samson, then he went out and wiped out the Philistines. And after the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness to take him to the fight with Satan. Jesus was filled, and then he goes, and then he fights. And the Spirit will likewise fill His people throughout the book of Acts. And every time they are filled, you can do this study for yourself. You can do a, a search through the Scriptures if you have an electronic Bible. You can look for every time someone is filled with the Spirit in the book of Acts, every single time they're filled, and they immediately, after they're filled, they preach, they sing, they speak, they rebuke, they exhort. Something comes out of their mouth every time they're filled with God's Spirit. They breathe out the wind of God. They breathe out the breath of God to a dead world. And that's what's happening here. The Spirit fills the apostles and they speak. It doesn't terminate on them and give them a private, personal, spiritual experience. It comes out. It comes out in languages. The city of Jerusalem on this day in Acts 2, the city of Jerusalem is full of pilgrims and they've come from all over the world to this great festival. And then they are gathered together and they hear the apostles miraculously speaking each in his own language. So if you are from Libya, you heard Andrew speaking in Libyanese. And if you were from Mesopotamia, you heard James speaking in Mesopotamese or whatever language they speak in Mesopotamia. It was quite a deal. You heard, you heard the gospel preached in your own language. It's, it's often assumed that this miracle of languages simply had an evangelistic purpose that now wonderfully men who didn't understand the Galilean dialect, they could now hear Peter preaching in their own language and believe. They could hear and believe. Well, it might have been that in part, but remember each of these men who come to Jerusalem, they're devout Jews and they would have at least been able to speak Aramaic, if not Hebrew. They could read and understand and listen to Hebrew and they probably needed to know Greek to get around the world and Latin as well. We always think we're so much smarter than ancient men who had to 
speak three or four languages in a given day just to operate, just to go from one thing to the next. How well could you do speaking two or three languages in one day? So if it was an evangelistic issue, Peter could have just stood up and Peter could have preached in Aramaic or he could have preached in Greek or he could have preached in Latin and everyone could have understood. So what is happening? What's going on here? Well, let's read verse six to try to picture this scene. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. They were all amazed and marveled. Verse 12. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. So it's obvious that even though they're speaking real languages, there's a lot of confusion And there's a lot of amazement at what's happening here. This is similar to the description of what happened at the Tower of Babel. It's it's a very easy connection to make between the day of Pentecost and the Tower of Babel. Revelation, which we've been studying, compares uh, Jerusalem to Babel. Uh, Jerusalem has been building her own ladders to heaven. Jerusalem has been creating a false unity, of a false brotherhood of man with her illicit dealings with Rome. So Jerusalem, like Babel, is under imminent judgment. And a sign of that is this scene of this amazing jumble of languages. Why? What, what does this mean? Well, because Israel has failed to hear the very direct, plain language of Jesus, there's now a multiplication of languages as the gospel is going to go out to every tongue and every nation and every land. Isaiah said this would happen. Back in Isaiah 28, Isaiah says, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to his people. So these foreign languages being spoken all over Jerusalem are a sign of the curse that is upon the people who have rejected Jesus. From this point on, after this, if you want to hear the gospel, if you want to read the gospel, you're not going to read it in Hebrew. None of the gospels are written in Hebrew. None of them are written in Aramaic. If you want to know the gospel, you've got to learn Greek. You've got to learn a tongue. You have to learn how to speak a tongue. The gospel is spoken in tongues in foreign languages. I'm speaking in tongues right now from the perspective of first century Hebrew. He would not have any idea what I was saying, but you would interpret it for him, right? Because you could say, hey, I can give you, because you know Hebrew and you can tell it to him. Well, the gospel has been spoken in tongues all day. When the sun came up this morning, the gospel was spoken in Japanese and Korean and Vietnamese and Chinese and Russian and German and French and English an Indian. Uh, and, and as the sun crosses the earth, the, the languages wake up and the languages speak and the, the, the gospel is preached in all of these tongues. These tongues are another sign that the old house has been torn down and a new house has been built. A new construction is underway. I've always loved Peter's response when, when he, overhears, he overhears somebody say, oh, these guys are drunk. They're full of new wine. And Peter says, these aren't drunk. It's only the third hour of the day. I mean, come on, give us some time. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. We haven't even got started yet. You want to see drunk? You hang around a little while. And interestingly enough, being filled with the Spirit is confused with being drunk with wine. Isn't that curious? Later in Ephesians, what will Paul say? He says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Remember when Hannah prayed at the tabernacle of meeting and Eli, she was, she was pouring out her soul because she wanted a child. And Eli, the priest, uh, condemned her 
and accused her of being drunk. But she was praying in the Spirit. She was full of the Spirit as she prayed. Isn't that, isn't that curious? What is this association between the Spirit and, and wine or Spirit and, and drunkenness? We call alcoholic drinks spirits for some reason. Strong drink burns when it goes down. Wine warms. Psalm 104 says, uh, wine brings joy to our hearts. It also loosens our tongues the way the Spirit does. Several similarities between the properties of wine and the way the Spirit works are, are evident. But while drunkenness with wine is prohibited, you can enjoy it. It can make your heart glad, but don't be drunk on it. Being drunk on the Spirit, being completely under the influence of the Spirit is commended. So Peter's response is that we're not drunk, not at all. This is what the prophet Joel spoke of in his prophecy. He quotes the prophet Joel and says, you're witnessing the end of the world. This is the day of Yahweh. This, the, the, the Lord is coming to us just as you have seen and heard. He's coming to visit Jerusalem once for all for her unbelief. Her lights are about to go out. All the lights are going to go out in Jerusalem. All the powers are going to be shaken and upset and overturned. And before it's all over with, uh, you're going to see that, that Jesus is vindicated. So call on the name of the Lord and be delivered from this destruction. He says, for generations you've been praying that God would break into history, that he would rend the heavens, that he would shake the earth. Now that day has come, so repent. So what do we do? What do we, how do we understand what is happening on the day of Pentecost? Three very quick observations and applications. Three things. What happened on the day of Pentecost? Well, it's exactly what Peter said happened. It was the evidence that the great day of the Lord had arrived. It's the beginning of final judgment on Jerusalem. That house is coming down. It's also the sign authenticating that the church is the new Jerusalem. The church is the new creation. It's the new temple. It's the new altar. If you want to worship God, you're going to have to go to the church. That's where his presence and his spirit rest. Uh, and these apostles are the new humanity in Christ. And so every day of the Lord after Pentecost, every Sunday is a continuation of Pentecost and a development on it. Today, Christ is coming as judge by his spirit. He stirred you up out of your bed, out of your warm, comfortable bed and woke you up and wooed you by his spirit to say, today's the Lord's day. Remember, you got an appointment. You got to come up here before God and Bring your petitions and eat bread and drink wine in his presence and hear his word. His spirit has stirred you up. You have fallen down on your knees in repentance. You have called on the name of the Lord, just as Peter exhorted you to. You, you have been washed by the spirit. He has confirmed your forgiveness. We have read and heard and spoken the words of the spirit in his, in his scriptures. And he's about to feed you spiritually at his table. All of these things are evidences that the Spirit is actively working in the church. Everything we do in worship is a function of a Spirit-filled people. We are directed in worship by the Spirit. That begins at Pentecost, the confirmation that this is the temple. The church is the temple and the new house of God. And that brings us to the second thing. Pentecost is the demonstration that God's blessing and spirit had left the old sanctuary. He's taken up residence in and on the church. And Paul tells the Corinthian church, do y'all know that y'all are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in y'all? It's second person plural. So, so it's not just you. We always think, 
oh, I'm the temple of God. Later in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he applies that in an individual way. But in 1 Corinthians 3, he uses the second person plural. If it were the King James, we would say, ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in, in you. Ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I like y'all. Y'all are the temple of God. The Spirit of God dwells in y'all. Again, it's not as if the temple is replaced by something just like it. The old house is raised to the ground. The new house is significantly larger by many orders of magnitude. The old temple served a select people in a small city, in a small country. You were only expected to appear if you lived less than 20 miles away. The church is the true house of prayer to all nations because it goes out to the world and to all the nations. We have a new portable temple. It's not stuck in one place in the world. Pentecost is when the church was shot out of a cannon into the world to obey her commission to preach the gospel to the whole world. And when they do that, immediately that puts them into conflict. That puts them into a fight, which is wonderful because the Holy Spirit is there to give them strength for that fight. So Pentecost points to the expansion of of the new covenant. Everything in the new covenant is an amplification and a glorification of the old covenant. Though again, that's not typically how it's thought of. We assume that the old covenant was about this public, visible, outward, concrete, objective religion, but the new covenant is internal and private. That the new covenant then is this kind of shrinking and this contraction we assume that in the old covenant, children were included in the people of God, but in the new covenant, only people who are mature enough to articulate certain propositional truths are included. So there's this, it used to include our children, but now this is shrinking and contraction. They, in the old covenant, had all these feast days and celebrations, but in the new covenant, we only have Sunday, and we do our best to be kind of miserable on Sunday, just to show how spiritual we are and how faithful we are. So there's this, in... in uh, it's just in the water and it's just in the air that we think that the new covenant is a contraction. It's a drawing in. It's a muting. Is that what we see on Pentecost? Is, is that what this is about? That, that, that it's just getting quiet and small and tiny. That's not the case. Here, the gospel goes out to the nations. The spirit is poured out in abundance. It's all expansion and magnification. We have better things than the old covenant. Not only baby boys receive the covenant sign, but girls do too. And it's not a bloody sign that's washing with water. Peter quotes Joel here and he says, all men and women, young and old, have the spirit poured on them. You all are priests. There's no gradations of holiness. There's no ranks of spiritual access. You all have sanctuary access. You are all saints. You are all priests. You are all prophets. No, no ranks. We no longer have animal sacrifices. We present ourselves living sacrifices. Impurity and corruption don't spread. Life spreads. We have access to the Holy of Holies. We go right in with confidence and boldness. We sit down and we eat bread and drink wine like priests with Jesus. So when you think of the transition between the old covenant and the new covenant, don't, don't think about contraction. Don't think about muting. Think about amplification and magnification and expansion and transformation. Yes, 
It is replacement, but it, it moves from glory to a greater glory. So then lastly, Pentecost is a call for everyone everywhere to leave that old world and to join with this new creation, join this new house that the Spirit is building. In, in Peter's sermon, he preaches, he says, this Jesus who came, who you crucified, was actually your Savior, your Messiah, and he calls them to repent. They're cut to the heart. They say, okay, what do we do? And, and, and he says, repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call. He exhorts them to repent, trust the Lord Jesus, and they finish the day with 3,000 baptisms. Once again, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters, bringing in a new creation. The invitation of Pentecost points to the Spirit as the superintendent of recreation, bringing new life out of dead things. So you come and you have your life, you have the house of your life torn down and rebuilt. The call is for you to be regenerated, not just to do a little hairy homeowner project, you know, not to just run down to Lowe's and get a box of screws and, you know, a board and see what you can do. Uh, not just have your floor swept. That won't do it because our hearts and our minds and our lives aren't these cute little fixer-uppers. Our lives get stacked floor to ceiling with corruption. The hallways are corrupted and cramped with filth. We've got more than dead cats shoved in our freezers. We are full of pollution. And what's worse, worse is we like it that way. I like my hoard of pizza boxes and Pepsi cans. I like my sins. I like my idols. And the only solution is for the wind and the fire of the Holy Spirit to blow through my life and burn it all out. For me to submit myself to the work of the Holy Spirit for his washing and his renewing and his regenerating work. As Paul told Titus, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. How? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what we see happening on Pentecost to the church collectively, but then that happens in every believer's life after that. We get renewed, we get filled, then we go, then we fight. We fight against our sin, we fight against the world of unbelief, we fight against the kingdom of darkness. We breathe life by our words. We are emboldened, we are empowered, we are encouraged because we are renewed. We are recreated. The dead and rotten stuff is continually burned out by the flame of the Holy Spirit that is kindled in us and we get to share this life together as members of the new temple. And so this is what happens at Pentecost. One house is brought down. The Spirit leaves that house and fills a new house, the temple, a new people. He lights that altar. He shows his presence and his warmth there. So if you want life, if you want to be part of this new creation, you must be joined by Christ, by his Spirit in the new sanctuary. Because you don't have life in yourself. You don't have fire in yourself. And if you stay in the old place, you'll be destroyed with it. Come out of the old dead world where wind and fire and water are judgment and come be joined to the new creation where the wind, fire, and water give life.
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would walk by him in life, that you would fill us indeed and give us strength and courage and boldness to obey you and to fight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.